You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Decadence on Display Carl R. Truman February 21st, 2022 World Magazine Opinions The appointment of Sam Brinton, a very public queer activist, to the U.S. Department of Energy is merely the latest sign of decadence in the dying culture of the West. Brinton, a man of such exotic and public perversions that I cannot in good conscience describe them here, is a sign of the times. It is, of course, not his perversions that are problematic with regard to his basic competence as a public official. It is the fact that he is an exhibitionist who uses his twisted sexuality to bully others in the workplace with the specific intention of educating the public, as Rod Dreher documents with a notable lack of squeamishness. You have been warned. What is interesting, of course, is that this is yet another sign of how the Biden presidency seems not simply mortgaged to the radical extremists of the left, but positively committed to promoting their causes. And that raises interesting questions about the Never Trump evangelicals. One of the interesting aspects of Never Trump evangelicals was the absolute refusal to allow for any legitimate reason to vote for Donald Trump. Joe Biden, they claimed, was going to restore some dignity to the office of President of the United States. Character counts. And so it does. But when two reprehensible candidates are the only options, character ceases to be a decisive issue, and Biden has more than proved that this was the case in the 2020 presidential election. When it comes to restoring the office's dignity, he has done no such thing. He has shown that he is quite capable of being rude and disrespectful of those with whom he disagrees. And now he has appointed Brinton to a government position. Analogies between this present age and the most decadent of Roman emperors are typically overblown and overwrought, but in this situation they seem sadly appropriate. Perversion and exhibitionism of such a Baroque type as that which Brinton represents surely indicates the mainstreaming of behavior previously regarded as a sign of deep mental illness. Now it walks the corridors of Biden's administration. The problem with the never-Trumpers was, and remains their adamant refusal to acknowledge that politics in general and voting in particular is a messy, compromised business. By denying any with whom they disagreed that line of defense in the Trump years, they must now face the consequences of their own principle of argumentation. After all, it is a sound New Testament principle that with the measure you have measured it out, it eventually will be measured back to you. How does that look in the wake of the Brinton appointment? Are they still confused as to why some people with a heavy heart and a conflicted conscience might have felt they had no choice but to pull the lever for Trump? If they are still perplexed by this, then their aspirations to save evangelicalism from itself would seem to reveal a startling lack of self-awareness. Of course, that is not surprising when one considers how Francis Collins was lauded as a faithful presence by a number of evangelical leaders upon his retirement, even though, as the Daily Wire's Megan Basham recently demonstrated in painful detail, Collins' faithful presence at the National Institutes of Health does not seem to have gone beyond that of faithfully turning up to work. In the real world, there are humble employees all over the country for whom faithful presence of the truly Christian kind 
comes with significant personal discomfort and professional cost, a cost that looks set to climb under Biden. Perhaps less time spent at photo opportunities with the New York Times and more time spent in conversation with ordinary evangelicals who reluctantly voted for Trump might help. Even better, maybe there is a young evangelical woman who now finds herself having to work under Britain at the Department of Energy. She might be able to help clarify the matter for them. To be fair to them, the never-Trumpers are probably the victims of an honest misunderstanding when elected, Joe Biden claimed that the adults were back in charge. My guess is that the never-Trumpers naively assumed he meant adult, as in grown-ups. The Brinton appointment indicates that he likely meant adult, as in bookstore and videos. It's a mistake anyone could have made. Up until last week, that is. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. That is not the Garrett Ashley Mullet content that... I just read for you. That is actually the Carl R. Truman content. But I am, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, reading for you an article from just a couple of days ago, or I should say from yesterday, because today is February 22nd, 2022. This is episode 335 of the podcast. It was published yesterday, probably not written yesterday. At least I would hope not. If I were publishing something in World Magazine, I would be writing it for a few days and not just throwing it out there, tossing it out there like I do with my podcast. But Carl R. Truman is a very smart man, and uh, I would not put it past him to be able to churn something out the day of publication. Maybe he did. I'm pleasantly surprised to see that in World Magazine. But, of course, Mr. Truman is quite correct in drawing the never-Trumpers back to their arguments from the Trump years. What was that you were saying about dignity and respectability and the need to have some decorum in the halls of power in this country? What was that you were saying about how we really can't tell who would be better to vote for in the election, Trump or Biden? It would seem they need to be reminded. But the article Carl R. Truman is referencing at the New York Times, you can check out for yourself. You would have to have a login at the New York Times but the dissenters trying to save evangelicalism from itself, an opinion piece by David Brooks, is now a couple of weeks old. February 4th, 2022 is when that was published. The kind of Christian evangelical engagement which the New York Times is going to highlight for all of us is probably not the kind we should go with, ultimately. The New York Times may, at some future date, publish the likes of Vody Bauckham and Carl R. Truman, but I wouldn't hold my breath if I were you. Carl R. Truman is the kind of evangelical engagement we should hope for more of in this country. And if you'll remember, a few weeks back, I did talk about Megan Bisham's article highlighting the 
very big names in mainstream evangelical leadership, Big Eva, as it's being termed more and more, who trotted out Francis Collins, former director of the National Institutes of Health, former uh, boss of Dr. Anthony Fauci. They trotted him out and gave him a platform and presented him to their congregations and to their audience as a faithful Christian, as a humble example of good Christian character. He is not that. And yet they were happy to put him forward as he gave his messaging on why we all need to quietly believe whatever it is the government is telling us the policy should be. Don't question, only obey. That is your responsibility as a Christian. If you want to have a good testimony, just trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey your government uncritically, without question. Interestingly enough, this really does need to be explored further. And some might feel like I'm being unkind or unpleasant, but there is too much at stake if we're not diligent on this point. The early Christian church was persecuted, fed to lions, arrested, beaten, imprisoned, tortured, sawn into, crucified, beheaded. The early Christian church was martyred in mass for a long time because early Christians refused to participate in the cult of the emperor. They refused to repeat after me, Caesar is Lord, in a way that elevated Caesar to a position that only God should occupy. Idolatry is a major problem for Christians. And even just eating meat that had been prayed over and consecrated to false gods was a controversy for the early church. Paul the Apostle writes about this in his letter to the church at Corinth. And that is not the topic for this podcast, but what is the topic for this podcast is that we cannot make government into God. We cannot say the equivalent of Caesar is Lord. We have to imply and insist and explicitly state that Christ is Lord. We have to communicate that in every facet of life. If we start acting and behaving as though Caesar is Lord or as though the government is Lord or as though public health policy is Lord, then we are lost. Our Christian testimony is destroyed. Not by questioning, but by unquestioning obedience and subservience and worship even. I, for one, am not impressed by the golden statue of either Francis Collins or Anthony Fauci. Certainly not impressed by a golden statue of Joe Biden and the Democrat Party. I will not bow down to it when you play the music. Not happening. Throw me to the furnace if you will. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. That is Christian testimony. And when the rubber meets the road, if we're not willing to pay a price, then it really does go a long ways to show what we really believe is worth our lives and wherein real life is to be had. If we don't believe 
that the life eternal, which is found in Christ for those who believe in him, if we don't believe that that life is better than this life, then, of course, we should be willing to deny the faith and worship whoever is offering us the greatest reward here on earth or threatening us with the greatest amount of punishment here on earth. But, as Romans 13 says, the governing authority holds no terror for those who do good. So we don't need to be like those who live in fear of our government, however much they might threaten us. For that matter, we don't need to live in fear of Sam Brinton, a very public queer activist. His appointment to the U.S. Department of Energy is sad, and it is frustrating. And it is all the more frustrating when it comes to evangelical leaders who wrung their hands publicly right at election time to say that there's really no difference. If anything, Biden might be a return to normalcy. And that, of course, is the most important thing for establishment types. Return to normalcy, the status quo has been good to them, so let's just keep things the way that they are. Maybe, just maybe, if they were facing down the real prospect of bankruptcy and not being able to provide for their wife and children, possibly losing their source of income, being put out of work, possibly not being able to afford basic amenities like, oh, I don't know, groceries and rent and utilities and putting fuel in the vehicle and making their truck payment. If they were facing down such things as that, they might not be so committed to the status quo, which threatens their lives and livelihoods. And yet, lo and behold, those who most often are for the status quo politically, in my experience in this country, yes, even in the church, have a vested interest in keeping happy the people who donate the most to their ministries, who donate the most to their churches, who are going to help them sponsor their books and promote their books, who are going to keep inviting them to parties and book clubs and public events. For our part, our Christian testimony is greater, not less, when we are willing to be persecuted and maligned and thought ill of and abused, when we are willing to have all manner of evil spoken against us in his name, because, well, this is the truth, and this is the truth according to God's word, and this is the truth according to God. That is where the rubber meets the road, and that's where we find out what we really truly believe and where our treasure is and where our heart is. But I'm reminded of a message I was sent the other day by a friend of mine in Ohio, somebody I knew when my brother was going to high school there in Jamestown. I won't tell you his name because I don't want to give away who it is that he is uh, dealing with himself, but he has a friend who is a youth pastor. And this friend who's a youth pastor is really struggling with what the Christian response should be when somebody comes out. When someone comes out as gay or bisexual or transgender, they say, I don't identify as attracted to the opposite gender, or I don't identify as somebody who is the gender I was born as. I feel like I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, for instance. 
or I feel like I was born this way and now I'm going to stop living a lie and I'm going to start being my true self and I'm going to start expressing all of these uh, temptations. (laughs) What should the Christian response be? Well, at a minimum, since this listener to the podcast asked what I would say, at a minimum, I would say, don't affirm it. Don't applaud it. Don't celebrate it. Don't go to that party. Don't bow down. At a minimum. At a minimum. And yes, I realize that alone, just being silent, having a silent disapproval, will earn you the contempt and the scorn and the hatred and the mocking of the people who are jumping on this bandwagon. I realize that we have in our day less and less tolerance even for abstaining from celebrations. But at a minimum, at a bare minimum, we should be abstaining from joining in the celebration. We should be abstaining from affirming. Yes, we are called to be encouraging, loving, supportive people as Christians, but we are not called to affirm someone destroying themselves. We are not called to affirm someone celebrating their sin publicly and calling good what God has said is evil. Woe to those who exchange bitter for sweet and who call good evil and evil good, Jesus says. Woe to them. And also, don't fear man who can only kill the body and then has nothing more he can do to you. Fear God who can both kill the body and throw the soul into hell forever. Fear God. Don't fear man. Proverbs tells us as well that fear of man lays a snare. That means a trap. The fear of man is a trap. But whoever trusts in Yahweh is safe. Now here's where I say something which may be offensive, but I think it needs saying anyways. All too often, the folks who have been put in positions of authority and leadership in churches across America have been chosen in very democratic sort of ways. They have been chosen based on their popularity or expected popularity. Are they going to be well-liked? Are they going to get butts in pews? Are they going to get people to show up on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights? Are they going to get people to tithe, put some money in the offering plate to support the ministry of this church? Are they going to get people to show up? Are they going to be a good MC when we have our fundraising campaign in the fall? Are they going to get kids excited about coming to youth group? Are they going to get older and wealthier people to participate in all ways, especially financial ways? Or, on the flip side, if we put this person in the position of pastor, are we going to see attendance go down possibly? Are we going to see some people offended possibly? Are we going to see tithes and offerings go down? Are people going to be less likely to put some money in the offering plate if this person is a pastor? Even once you've put somebody in a position, that temptation is there. And there's not a whole lot that I see in my experience in churches across America. There's not a whole lot I see offsetting that 
temptation to show partiality as we hold to the faith. James, half-brother of Jesus, talks about this in the New Testament, and he's very clear. We have become unjust judges when we say to the poor brother wearing shabby clothes, you go sit over there. Sit at my feet. You, stay out of the way. You, keep your hands where I can see you. But we say to the rich man who comes into our gathering wearing fine clothes, here, you, please sit in the seat of honor. We're also going to recognize you during the service because that's more likely to keep you around if we just flatter you until you open up that checkbook for all of us. Because think of all of the ministry we can do with a new TV and a new projector and a new sound system. And oh, by the way, we're doing a missions trip to El Salvador this summer, and we could really use your support. And when we choose our pastors and associate pastors and youth pastors, when we choose our ministry leaders based on whether we're going to be able to fundraise better or worse off of them, whether attendance is going to go up or go down, when we choose first and foremost based on those kinds of metrics and those kinds of calculations, what room is left for asking the question of whether God is going to bless this ministry? Is this a godly ministry? Is this a ministry that's faithful, that is doctrinally sound? Is this a ministry that is biblically correct? Or is this a ministry that is politically correct? What should our politics be? Should our politics be, first and foremost, that the outside world dictates to us what we do and don't say? Or should our our politics be, we have God's word. We have the oracles of life. We have his promises. We have the unchangeable character of his purpose to share with a world that is dead and dying. And we want to inform their politics. I have family either now in full-time ministry or family members who have previously been in full-time ministry. And I have seen this play out. Young, dynamic, charming, funny, optimistic, hopeful, pleasant, outgoing. They've got a big idea that they're going to go out there and they're going to turn the world upside down for Christ. And they get sent out like lambs to the slaughter. And I've seen this play out, that they are sent out as missionaries and they end up being converted themselves. But they try to combine what they're converted to with the original message that they were sent out there to preach. Yes, they're given financial support here and there, but what comes with that very, very often when they're part of an organization that loses sight of the main thing is what, what comes with human nature, the temptation to compromise. What God said. Hath God said? Did he really say? Is that really so important? Yes, we should be all things to all people. Paul writes about that. Paul demonstrated that in his ministry in the New Testament. Paul demonstrated that by going to Mars Hill and waxing eloquent with the philosophers and the philosophically minded Athenians. And yet, we are not supposed to go and be taken captive by vain human philosophies. So here's my question. Before I answer the question of how should a youth pastor or an associate pastor or a senior pastor for that matter, or a Christian light person, for that matter. How should they respond to somebody saying they've come out as gay, 
or bisexual or transgender or what have you or queer or asexual or what have you how should the christian respond how do you think they should respond and what is informing how you think they should respond Here's the test. Whatever I'm going to tell you, you could possibly nitpick and say, well, yeah, but, you know, what if this happens and what if that and what about this and what about that? Just stop for a second. Is your response going to be informed by a fear of God, a love for God's word, a love for what God says is good, hatred for what God says is evil and wicked, loving life and defining life on God's terms, hating death because you love people, warning them when their decisions, their attitudes, their mindset is death? Is that what's informing our response? Or is what's informing our response, when it really comes down to it, a fear of man? If I say X, Y, and Z, they're going to reject me. If I say X, Y, and Z, so-and-so is going to have a talk with me later about how maybe they're not going to come here anymore. Maybe they're not going to be supporting our ministry anymore. Maybe they're not going to be friends with us anymore. Maybe we're not going to be simpatico anymore. Boiling it down even simpler, what is driving our response? Is it fear of God or is it fear of man? Is it love for God and for our fellow man? Or is it love for being spoken well of? And are we confusing a Christian testimony on the one hand, that's a good thing, with just reputation in general. I like when people think highly of me. Absolutely. But also, we're told in the scriptures, beware when men speak well of you. Do you know why you should beware when men speak well of you? Because they may be flattering you to try and manipulate you. And it's up to you whether that works or not. You're getting played Okay, that's one possibility. Another possibility is they speak well of you because you're just like them. And they're actually complimenting themselves. Beware when men speak well of you. Men spoke well of those who put to death the prophets and the apostles and the disciples and the martyrs. Men spoke well of those who did the stoning and the beheading and the arresting and the accusing and the beating and the throwing out of synagogues and cities, driving into the wilderness. Men spoke well of those who did such things because they approved, because they thought that was a good thing. They thought, hey, that, you know what? These guys are a nuisance. They are trouble. Acts chapter seventeen six, I think is worth a gander. And I'll just pull this up. I wrote it down on my desk yesterday as I was listening to the Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith, and the Future of Freedom by Oz Guinness. Listening to that while I work, he references this as he's talking about how Christians and the church and the gospel message have historically been revolutionary. When preached, when lived according to the gospel message has been revolutionary time and again. Paul and Silas in Thessalonica, Acts chapter 
17, 6 in particular, but I'll just read this whole paragraph from verse 1 to verse 9. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So let me unpack this. Let me explain. No, wait, there's too much. Let me sum up. Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is, in our day, the second biggest city in Greece. It's a big deal. It is placed strategically in this little natural harbor in the north of Greece. Thessalonica is kind of a big deal. Paul and Silas come to Thessalonica, and when it says on three Sabbath days, I think what it's describing here is three weeks. Over the course of three weeks, Paul reasons with the Jews from the scriptures. Okay, that's a first and important point here. Reasons with the Jews from the scriptures and explains from the scriptures and proves from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. The Messiah that's promised all throughout the Old Testament all through the Law and the Prophets. That Messiah had to suffer. And here's where it says that. Here's where God told us the Messiah would suffer. Furthermore, here's where we read that the Messiah was going to be put to death and that he had to rise from the dead. Now that's general, but Paul makes it specific. Okay, that's a general truth. Now I'm telling you, Jesus was this Messiah. He fulfilled the prophecies about him. Jesus was our Messiah. Jesus is our Messiah. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So that is to say they were converted. Paul was successful. Far too many Christians think that Christianity needs to be an emotional appeal, first and foremost. Actually, historically, the gospel message has been something you're trying to talk people into. You're trying to make an argument concerning. Arguments get a bad rap in our day and age when we don't believe in objective truth anymore. 
We believe in self-expression. And what kind of Christianity do we find very often? We find the self-expressive kind. We find fog machines and light machines and let's dim the lights and let's play very emotional music and let's have the lyrics to our songs be very repetitive and very about us. Me, 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 me. How do I feel about Jesus? How do I feel about God? How do I feel? What does this do for me? Because we're selfish. We're self-absorbed. And we've mixed that in with our Christianity. And this is also part of why we're confused about how to respond when somebody comes out of the closet. Because they're expressing themselves. Oh, I feel conflicted now. What's wrong with expressing yourself? Well, uh, mm, God kind of says not to express yourself in this way. (gasps) How dare you? Right now we are at an impasse. Because the chief good of man could be this and it could be that. The chief good, chief end of man could be to express himself and enjoy himself. The chief end of God could be to help man enjoy himself. If we preach a gospel which is man-centered, the chief end of God becomes to enjoy man, to have fellowship with man and enjoy him forever, to serve man forever. Is that the kind of gospel that we're preaching? That God is here to serve us. God is here to make us happy. God is here to give us everything that we want whenever we want it because we were born this way. Well, yes, you were born selfish, and you were born in your sins. That's true. You were born that way. Also, you need to be born again, a different way. (laughs) When you're born again a different way, God's going to take out that heart of stone, and he's going to put in a heart of flesh. He's going to make you whole again. And it won't be overnight, and you'll still have to wrestle with things, and you'll still have to contend with things, and you'll still have to temptations you're still going to have to resist those temptations you're not always going to do the good thing that you ought to and you're going to sometimes do the bad thing that you ought to not do but there's grace if you're in christ but you've got to be in christ the chief end of man is to love god and enjoy him forever according to the westminster shorter catechism i believe maybe the longer more extended catechism but the chief end of man is to enjoy god forever to love God, and to enjoy him forever. We are to serve him, not that he needs our service, but because he requires it, because he made us to serve him. And we're in no position to question the potter. We are the clay, he's the potter. We don't get to talk back to the potter and say, why did you make me this way? Maybe he answers at some point, but he doesn't owe you an answer. You don't call God out on the mat in a very self-indulgent way, as if you're actually God. And yet, When we elevate man's self-expression without any kind of qualifications, any kind of stipulations, any kind of restraint, when we're unwilling to either restrain ourselves or call one another to restraint, to repentance, we may just not know the gospel message. And yet, part of how we are set free, and free indeed in Christ, is when we get things in the proper order. The chief end of God is not to serve us. The chief end of man is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like that. It's related to the first commandment, to love one another as we love ourselves. As we love God, we love one another as we love ourselves because man is made in God's image. And yet, notice what it is that the mob 
describes them as a mob. Cancel culture. Some wicked men of the rabble were taken along with jealous Jews who did not like all this Jesus talk, this Messiah talk. Hey, Paul and Silas are persuading several of the leading women and devout Greeks, a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, and some of the men. So you have more of the men, it would seem, who are skeptical about all this Jesus talk, all this Messiah talk, a little too proud to admit and to be persuaded, maybe just maybe. The devout Greeks, on the other hand, a great many of them are persuaded, and not a few of the leading women, so several, many, a decent amount. The jealous Jews who don't like Paul being able to persuade devout Greeks and leading women, and some of the men, literally rabble-rouse, and they get wicked men to join in with them, which should be your first sign. That should be your first clue. When you have to go looking for wicked men to join your cause, maybe your cause is not so just. Just saying. They drag Jason and some of the brothers in front of the city council. And they shout. They're angry. They are jealous. And they are proud of their jealousy. And they're going to announce it. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Saying that there is another king, Jesus. And this would form the basis for the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. That the Christians said, Jesus is Lord. This formed the basis for the persecution of the saints. There is another king, Jesus. This is why Christians and Christianity and the church are a threat because competing truth claims are being made. On the one hand, we could believe that Caesar is Lord. On the one hand, we could say that Joe Biden, for instance, is the be-all, end-all. We could say that the National School Board Association is Lord. The National Institutes of Health are the Lord. MSNBC is the Lord. MTV I don't even know if anybody watches MTV anymore. It used to be a big deal. Probably not so much anymore. YouTube is Lord. How about that? YouTube is now what MTV used to be. But if you listened to yesterday's episode on Francis A. Schaeffer's How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. He says, No totalitarian authority nor authoritarian state can tolerate those who have an absolute by which to judge that state and its actions. Which is another way of saying, when Christians say that Jesus is Lord, they quickly find themselves dragged before city councils, maybe even school boards, maybe even governing boards for churches, denominational boards, maybe even the governing board of universities. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. That's really what it comes down to. That is what it comes down to at the end of the day. Who is the Lord? If Jesus is Lord, then we should expect that our response to things is going to proceed apace. Somebody says they're celebrating sexual immorality 
embracing it, making a habit of it, enjoying it, loving it, coming out, not to repent of something, not to turn away from it, not to ask for help, coming out to say, I identify with this rebellion against God. I'm joining the rebellion against God. So here's what I would say when my friend and listener from Ohio asks me to treat this topic, whether we're talking about a pastor, senior associate, youth, music, whether we're talking about an elder or a deacon, whether we're talking about a Sunday school teacher, whether we're talking about a layperson, it really does not matter. Any way you slice it, we need Christians to come out as Christians. We certainly have plenty of folks coming out as either lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer. Wait for it, because pedophilia is coming. Bestiality as well. That article I read for you at the top of this episode, Decadence on Display by Carl R. Truman, published in World Magazine. Do you know what it is that Sam Brinton very publicly celebrates as far as a lifestyle, alternative lifestyle? What Truman has far too much dignity to describe and what Dreher has, as Truman says, a notable lack of squeamishness in documenting is that this Sam Brinton has a fetish for pretending that other gay men are dogs. And he leads them around like he's their owner and they go around on all fours like they're a dog, puts a collar on them and a leash on them and all that. And I won't say any more than that about it. But where this is going is every kind of sexual immorality because they want that next and the next and the next shock to the system because those who hate God love death. They're killing themselves and you can't tell them that or else they'll try to kill you for real. So the exact same issue that Lot ran into when the men of Sodom came to his door demanding that the angels who had come to extract Lot and his family be given to them to have sex with. Lot tries to plead with them, please don't do this thing. Please, this is a wrong thing. It's a bad thing. What's their response? Anger. They're angry. In part because, how dare you? You now look a lot like the God in whose image we are all made who we are in rebellion against, who we hate. And because we hate him, we hate you too. Also, we're jealous. We're jealous of this thing that you still have that we lost a long, long time ago, if we ever had it, this thing called decency. And yet, the role of the Christian, the answer to the question of how we should then live, is, for instance, Acts 17, 1 through 9. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one who will save us from sin and death, and did. And do we believe that? And do we live as though we believe it? 
again, to answer the question, how should the Christian respond when someone comes out as LGBTQ+, or comes out as an ally, if you will? I don't know if that's a term yet, but allyship definitely is a term. Woe to those who affirm sin, though. Romans one thirty two, also the Apostle Paul. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They not only do these things, but they are allies, you might say, to those who practice them. Romans chapter 1 is all about God's wrath against sin because God is holy and he has a right to be angry when his creation rebels against him and tries to destroy his creation. God has a right to be upset. He has every right to be upset. You think you get upset when somebody tells you the truth and you didn't want to hear it? Do you know why you get upset? Because you, in your heart of hearts, want to be God. You don't like somebody telling you that there are certain boundaries and limitations which you have to respect. Now imagine putting yourselves in God's place. You already have, but imagine having actually created everything that exists, actually being the center of the universe in terms of meaning and purpose and value and worth and authority. This is what we do when we worship, or at least that's what we're supposed to do when we worship, is we're supposed to be acknowledging the truth, testifying to the truth. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Romans 1.18 says, For what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from his workmanship, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity for the dishonoring of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever worthy of praise. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to dishonorable passions. What we need is for Christians to come out of the closet as Christians. And what I mean is, you need to make it known that you are a Christian by testifying to the truth, not affirming lies, not affirming wickedness. Though they know God's righteous decree, verse 32, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You can't affirm. You have to sometimes consider whether you are casting pearls before swine. Yes, yes, yes. But if you are going to say something, you should say something along the lines of Ezekiel chapter 33. That's where the inspiration for the title of Francis Schaeffer's book comes from. Yesterday's episode is all about how then should we live. Ezekiel chapter 33 Starting in verse 7, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. 
Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give the warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? The house of Israel asks God, How then can we live? God asks in return, in reply, Why will you die, O house of Israel? If you would answer that question, it would go a long ways to answering your question. So, I gotta run. It's a Tuesday morning. I need to get to work. That's all I got for this episode. Hopefully that answers the question, or at least is faithful insofar as I answered the question. Feel free to reach out if you have any comments, questions, concerns, objections, complaints on this or any other topic. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.